The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. And the title of our sermon this morning is An Earnest Expectation, An Earnest Expectation. This is part one, so we consider Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. And uh, as we began our study of this text last week, uh, we began our text in consideration of verse 18 and the glory that is ours in union with Jesus Christ uh, in comparison with the sufferings of the Christian in their present experience. Uh, when the, the glory that we will share with him in the age to come, when that glory is recorded on a ledger, if you will, or recorded on, uh, placed on the scales, if you will, opposite our experience of suffering in this present age, opposite our experience of affliction in the Christian life, all of our suffering, as it were, all of our difficulty in this age, in this life, fades in significance. From the perspective of heaven, Paul says our afflictions become momentary and they become light, not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We shall be glorified together with the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, and the glory which the Father has given to him, John 17, is the glory which he has given to us, a glory that is manifest in our reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, a glory that is manifest with our perfect conformity into his person, and a glory that we will behold finally seeing him face to face. We're going to be glorified together with Jesus Christ. Amen? And when we consider that glory, the point of Paul's uh, passage here, the point of Paul's argument is this. When we consider that glory, then the difference difficulties, the trials, the adversity, the affliction, the pain, the persecution that we face in this life just merely fades into insignificance when compared. They're not even worthy to be compared. You can't really put the two on a ledger side by side. One far outweighs the other. Well, that which will one day fill our sight in the age to come, now must fill our eyes of faith, must fuel our faith. We don't see it now, do we, in this life? We don't see, we don't have that possession now. It's been given to us, it's reserved there for us. We don't have it, we don't fully see it yet. We haven't fully taken possession of it. It's there, as Peter says, reserved in heaven for us, uh, incorruptible, undefiled, not waiting, not fading away, but we can see it here and now. And as it is written, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So while we're here in this life, we have that waiting for us, but we look to that possession. We look to that inheritance in faith. In comparison with that possession, that inheritance, with that glory that is ours in union with Jesus Christ, in comparison, what is it in this life that we do see? What do we have that often fills our present experience? What is it that we've been called to, as Paul would say? We've been called to suffering, suffering in this life. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What will be the experience of those who set out to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? All who live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. We have to look forward to difficulty. Sometimes just the difficulties, the afflictions of living in a fallen world, sometimes bearing suffering, bearing difficulty for the cause of Christ. For that reason, Paul says in our text, set your mind on things above, 
not on things on the earth. Fix your gaze, as it were, on eternal and unseen things in the heavens. The more that we look there, the better that we see things here. Does that make sense? The more that we look there, the better that we see things here, the better perspective we have on our difficulty. If you've turned from sin to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've died. Your life is now hidden with him. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So according to verse 17, then once we have suffered a little while with him, we shall also be glorified together with him. Suffering now, glory later. Amen. And the sufferings of this present time, when we hold those things in the scales, in the balance, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, as we think through our text and Paul's point, Paul's argument in Romans chapter eight, what is the concern of Paul in raising this issue? Paul has raised this issue, and in particular, suffering in the Christian life, and now our suffering when compared with our glory in eternity. Paul's raised this issue. What is the concern of Paul in making this argument? It's an exceedingly important issue. It's very important to Christians in living the Christian life, how to deal with Christian suffering. But what's the point? What's the application? Does Paul simply want us to feel better? When we face trials, I certainly hope you do feel better, but I don't think Paul is concerned with our feelings. Paul's concerned with our endurance. Paul's concerned with our perseverance, our patience through trial. Our text, chapter eight, verse 25, ours is a hope that we do not see in this life. We see it there with the eyes of faith. We don't see it here in practical application. We don't possess it now. Ours is a hope that we do not see in this life. So while we fight through this present time of suffering while you are engaged in the battle, brother, putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, while you face the the difficulties, the adversity of living in a fallen world, living in this fallen flesh, while we fight through our present time of suffering, we must eagerly wait for the realization of our hope with perseverance. Endurance is a fruit of hope. While we're here, we hope and we need endurance. We need perseverance. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. It's he who endures to the end that will be saved. Do you see? We need to persevere. Now, for the embattled Christian then, that hope, the hope that Paul's describing here, that hope of glory, That hope that is described in Hebrews chapter six is called an anchor for our soul. It's referred to as an anchor for our soul. Those who have fled to Christ, that anchor might give us strong consolation. That's strong consolation, strong comfort, strong encouragement in the midst of our suffering, strong consolation in the midst of hardship, in the midst of affliction, adversity, and pain. Hebrews chapter six, verse 12, listen. The reason that we need that, the reason we need endurance is so that you do not become sluggish. The word there is nothros. It means lazy. It means slow and apathetic. There's a a sense to the Christian life and Paul's admonition here in Hebrews 6, 12 to haste, hastening the day, hastening the period, the appearing of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. And here Hebrews warns us against becoming sluggish, against becoming slow or apathetic. But he says, imitate those who through faith and endurance, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. 
So our hope is certain, it's sure. God confirmed it with an oath. He promised and confirmed that promise with an oath. God's word is sure. His promises will come to pass. That glory awaits those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in all of that, we have strong consolation, strong motivation to persevere. But what is it about that hope? What is it about that motivation that serves as an anchor for our soul? How does that hope serve as an anchor for your soul in times of difficulty and trouble. When you face adversity, persecution, hostility, sickness, disease, pain, even to the point of death, what should motivate us to endure through faith and inherit the promise? What is the, the, the center, if you will, or the focus of that endurance? The focus of that endurance is the fact that our elder brother has gone before us. Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us and is there even now always living to make intercession for us. Listen to Hebrews chapter six, verse 19, where other encouragements may fail you, where difficulties may otherwise swamp you. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil. Our hope has entered the presence behind the veil. Verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus Christ, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, when our eyes of faith are fixed upon him, the one who endured suffering for us and the one who has gone before us into glory, when our eyes of faith are fixed upon him, The Puritan Thomas Adams said this, whatever our dungeon is in this life, it is but the lower side of the vault of heaven. And the stairs of the scaffold of our martyrdom are but so many degrees of our ascent to glory. In other words, when we keep our eyes of faith focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ, focused upon eternal and unseen things in the heavens, then that perspective from that vantage point, our difficulty, our trials, our adversity, our suffering in this life fades into insignificance. There is no way that the two can be compared. The suffering of this present age, not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, Paul, as we come to Romans chapter eight, verse 19, Paul wants us to consider in our text this morning that the believer's hope of glory then is set within a much larger context. The believer's hope of glory is set within a much larger context. Paul encourages us to see our own hope of glory within the context of God's redemptive purposes and God's redemptive purposes, cosmic, cosmic in their scope. Redemption extends beyond us, brothers and sisters, to the, to the creation itself. Everything will be renewed. Everything will be transformed. And with our redemption, we also see the restoration of the created order. Listen to verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's almost as if we listen close enough, we can hear it Can't we? in our day and age. The creation groaning under the weight of the fall. The creation essentially groaning under the weight of our own sin. 
That glory that will be ours in union with Jesus Christ at the end of the age, that glory will be set against the backdrop of cosmic glory, cosmic renewal. In reversing the tragic consequences of man's fall into sin, consequences that only serve to plunge mankind into ruin and despair, but subjected also the entirety of God's created order into disorder. In reversing that tragedy, God is at work through the redemption of his people to deliver not only man from his bondage to corruption, but also to deliver the material universe as well. Basically all things that we say that we see from its bondage to corruption and to transform, ultimately transform creation into what the Bible refers to as the new heavens and the new earth. A new heavens and a new earth so magnificent in its existence, in its scope, that God says the former creation, this is Isaiah 65, God says that the former creation won't even be remembered or recalled to mind. We're going to forget this creation altogether in the splendor that is the new heavens and the new earth. Isaac Watts, Isaac Watts uh, published a hymn in 1719 uh, called Joy to the World. And in Joy to the World, he had this in mind in verse three of that hymn. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, right? Can't sing this morning. My voice is going out. Uh, Many sing that hymn at Christmas, and at Christmas only. We sing that hymn here all year round. Um, And it's not particularly uh, an incarnation hymn as much as as it is a second return of Christ hymn. It has to do with God's work of final redemption. Let heaven and nature sing. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. That's a, a proclamation of nature at the return of Jesus Christ to restore creation in a new heavens and a new earth. And like scripture does, the hymn, listen to the hymn, the hymn personifies creation. All creation is said to rejoice in the redemption that is ours, in the glory that is ours at the revealing of the sons of glory, ours in Christ Jesus. Joy to the world based primarily on Psalm 98. Listen to Psalm 98 verse seven. Let the sea roar and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness, he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. It's interesting that the creation there rejoices that God is coming to judge the earth. Judgment precedes glory, right? We are saved to glory through judgment. And here, the creation rejoicing, rivers clapping their hands, the hills joyful together because the Lord is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness, he shall judge the world, all the peoples with equity. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, in other words. Now we find that curse, and I want you to see this with me. We find that curse in Genesis chapter three. Turn there with me. Genesis chapter three. This is a text we're very familiar with. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve have committed a treasonous act of rebellion against God. God had withheld no good thing from them, and yet judging God to be somehow unjust in withholding from them the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil, Eve takes of the tree and she eats, and then Adam takes of the tree and he eats. 
And as Paul says then in Romans chapter five, sin entered the world and death through sin. And the curse of God then is pronounced. Well, how far is the curse to be found? First, God curses the serpent, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The curse doesn't end there. The curse is also found in childbirth and in the relationship between a wife and her husband. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And also then in verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. The curse represents God's righteous judgment against sin. God is righteous and God is just in his judgments against sin. In Adam, our federal head, the representative of the whole whole human race, the curse of sin came upon us all. And now we know this to be true. Everyone returns to the dust. And why is that? Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Those born in Adam, born as sons of their father, Adam, are liable to the judgment of an everlasting death. Not just what the Bible calls the first death, but what the Bible calls the second death. Galatians chapter three, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, under the curse of the law, as it were. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But in addition to Adam and Eve, all of creation comes under the curse, doesn't it? Listen to what he says to Adam. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat it. Thorns and thistles will be brought forth for you. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your face till you return to the ground. All creation is under the curse. So to the point of the hymn, then, where is the curse to be found? Far as the curse is found, how far is the curse to be found? Everywhere you look. (laughs) The curse is found everywhere you look. How far may the effects of the curse be traced? These are the effects of our sin, the effects of Adam's sin in the garden. How far may the curse be found? Even to our very cells, our very cells. I was reading an article last week. Um, They're continuing after decades, continuing this search for a cure to cancer. Affects us at the cellular level. The curse is found even to our DNA. The curse is woven into our genes, so to speak. There isn't a molecule in the known universe. There isn't a molecule in the unknown universe that isn't affected by the weight of sin's effects. That's why heaven and nature sing. That's why heaven and nature are personified and seen to sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. At his first coming, 
the earth did not receive her king. Men loved darkness rather than light because the de their deeds were evil. And they crucified the Lord of glory. But when he comes again, when he comes in victory, he rules the world in truth and grace and makes the nation prove, nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. In the words of Psalm 98, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Now that personification of creation is seen throughout the Bible. We see scripture do that. That's one of the reasons that Isaac Watts wrote to him in the way that he did from Psalm 98. That personification seen all over the Bible. Look at Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 with me. And when we see often the personification of creation, that personification giving human attributes to non-human things, right? Uh, characterizing a non-human thing with human attributes. When that personification is seen, the personification of creation, it's regularly seen in connection with the redemption of God's people. Look at Isaiah chapter 35. And in chapter 35, the context of chapter 35 is God's judgment upon the nations, and particularly here, his judgment upon Edom. In chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord says, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, indeed it shall come down on Edom, and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. 34, chapter, uh, chapter 34, verse 8, it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The Lord promises not one of these judgments will fail. And so then how does the creation then respond in chapter 35, verse 1? Look at verse 1 with me. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And again, notice the context, the, na the nature creation rejoicing that God has come back in final judgment to bring judgment upon his enemies. In other words, the creation is going to be restored. The creation is going to be renewed, but it comes after the judgment of God's enemies. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Now in verse 3, we then see practical application for God's people. We're to take hope. Glory will soon be ours. The sufferings of this present time, not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Therefore, verse three, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Hebrews 12 would say, take encouragement, right? Take encouragement. Say to those who are faint hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. You can... In context, and in thinking about how all this comes together now, whenever we see these texts, particularly in the Old Testament Gospel of Isaiah, many texts in Isaiah, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 22, Isaiah 65, 66. We'll look at Isaiah 55 in a moment. Throughout Isaiah, there's this picture 
of the creation rejoicing at the coming of God in judgment, God coming to judge his enemies, and at the same time, the encouragement for God's people to persevere, for God's people to endure through their suffering, endure through their tribulation. Why? Because glory is coming. Glory is coming. God returns to judge the earth for its wickedness at the same time that God comes to redeem his people in glory, and the the creation rejoices. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the deserts, the parched ground shall become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water, in the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. In other words, what is Isaiah saying? There'll be a new creation a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Why is that? Because the Lord has returned in victory. The Lord has returned in triumph. He's judged his enemies. He's put down the wicked. He has delivered his people, and he has created anew. A highway, verse 8, a highway shall be there in a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. Holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. In other words, he's going to reverse the curse. In other words, he's, he's reversing the current creation to its original splendor, the way that the creation was before the fall, and it'll be even greater than that. We'll see. No lion shall be there. But, verse 9, the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Creation doesn't sing alone, does it? (laughs) We sing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. Turn over to Isaiah 55 with me. A few pages to the right, Isaiah 55. And again, we see the same, the same thing, the same personification. Verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Why do you tarry? <laughs> you who have no money, come by and eat. Stop dragging your feet. <laughs> yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. All that is necessary to spiritual life is yours in Jesus Christ. Water, bread, wine, and milk, your body nourished by these things, but let your soul find nourishment in the grace and mercy of our God. Verse two, why do you spend money for what is not bread? Why do you spend money for, your, for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, come to me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. That's a call to the gospel. Find your hope in Jesus Christ. Turn to God. Rest in him for grace and mercy, and he will enter into covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the, for, the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And what will be his portion then? What will be that one's portion at the end of the age? Verse 12. You shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. It's another way of saying, 
we're, it's all going to be renewed. You're going to be delivered. Creation is going to be delivered. Your redemption is against the backdrop of a cosmic redemption, the regeneration of the creation. Instead of thorn, verse 13, which is the symbol of the curse, remember? Instead of thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Frequently, particularly in Isaiah, creation is personified as rejoicing when the sons of glory are revealed at the end of the age. When the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in victory, the nations sing, creation sings. When God's people are glorified, when all of creation is transformed, when God's people delivered from their bondage to corruption, when the creation delivered from its bondage to corruption, and all of that in God's triumph over the curse. It's this personification then that we see communicated back in verse 19, Romans chapter eight. Turn back there with me. Romans chapter eight, verse 19. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul uses that language of personification for a reason. Personification, again, involves attributing human characteristics to non-human things. And personification here in verse 19 employed with a purpose, the earnest expectation as if creation is longing, as if creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of glory. What it communicates is this. It communicates that we're not alone in our suffering. Our sin affects far more than ourselves. <laughs> the fall has affected the curse of this creation in addition to the curse of humanity, the entire cosmos, all that God has created has been affected by the fall of man. But nor are we alone in our redemption. God has regard for the things that he has made. I think there's a, a, an exceedingly unhealthy uh, regard for environment on the part of many people in our day and age. But can we say, for example, can the devastating effects of climate change, for example, is that a fictional thing? No, it's not fictional. We see the effects of the fall in our world, in our environment, in climate itself. We can see the negative effects of the fall of man into sin. I think it's a false morality to pursue that rather than pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is all going to be redeemed when he returns in victory. It's not going to be redeemed by cutting off our energy resources, for example. <laughs> um, God has regard for the things that he has made. It says, though creation itself cries out for the return of Jesus Christ. Not only was creation affected by our fall into sin, but the redemption or the restoration of creation is connected with the consummation of our redemption at the end of the age. All of it is connected together. And when we are revealed in glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of creation will be transformed with us. Peter says this, that day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Nevertheless, Peter says, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're looking forward to that. Creation is looking forward to that. Now, Paul 
That was the introduction. Paul explains this connection in our text under three primary headings. To give you a background of that in the Old Testament, right? A background behind that personification, behind the redemption of creation. Uh, It's not an unusual thing that Paul brings up here in Romans chapter eight, verse 19. It's something that's very commonly connected with our redemption in the Old Testament. We see it connected again in the New Testament. Paul brings up this connection in our text under three headings. First, there is the earnest expectation in verse 19 the earnest expectation. Second, there is an unwilling subjection in verse 20. And third, there is a glorious deliverance, verses 21 and 22. Now notice first, the earnest expectation of the creation in verse 19. We'll have time for this point this morning. We'll get to points two and three next week. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul refers here to the earnest expectation of the creation, not to his people here. We're going to get to that in verse 23. He's referring to the earnest expectation of the creation. Now by this, by that word creation, Paul does not mean the angels. The angels have not been subjected to corruption or subjected to futility. Those angels that have not fallen. And Paul is not referring here to Satan or to fallen angels. They've got no interest in redemption (laughs) and they know their days are numbered. The same there would apply to unbelievers. Paul's not referring to unbelievers. They don't eagerly await the revealing of the sons of God. And then believers are mentioned separately down in verse 23. We're going to cover that later. So what is Paul referring to with his use of this word creation? Paul's referring to the non-rational part of creation. Animals, plants, things. Paul's referring to the material creation, the physical world around us. That creation that non-rational part of creation is personified as having an earnest expectation. That word earnest expectation, a single word in the Greek, and it's communicating an intense desire, intense longing, an intense need. The creation isn't right now clapping its hands, is it? It's not singing, rejoicing. The earnest expectation, that word describes the intensity, and it's, it's a strong word. It, it describes the intensity with which creation now longs for or anxiously awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Creation isn't singing for joy. That word literally has in mind someone stretching their neck or stretching their head up, uh, reaching up and forward to see off at a distance, as it were, something that it is longing for. It refers to a fervent or an ardent longing. And the singular focus of that obsessed, obsessed longing, right? The, the singular focus of that, that fervent, anxious desire is the revealing of the sons of God. And for that, verse 19, the creation eagerly waits. That language is further explained in verse 22. How can we explain or how can we describe that earnest expectation, that anxious waiting in verse 19? It takes place while creation groans or laments in verse 22. That earnest expectation, that eager waiting is a groan or a lament The earnest expectation or anxious waiting is provoked by the creation laboring there with birth pangs. The word literally refers to suffering agony. Again, that word birth pangs referring to suffering agony. The creation is seen, verse 19, as suffering agony along with the people of God, 
suffering agony awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. Notice that Paul doesn't refer to them there in verse 22 as death pains. They're birth pains, right? Not death pains. This is a pain that has connected with it the ultimate and eventual joy of new birth. It's pain to be sure, right, ladies? It's pain to be sure. But this, this pain has connected with it the joy of new birth. They're called birth pains. Verse 23 clarifies it further as the redemption of our body. That's what the creation is said to be eagerly or anxiously waiting for. The new birth is described as the revealing of the sons of God, the redemption of our body. In other words, there is coming a day, verse 19, in which the sons of God will be revealed in glory. In that day, when the sons of God are revealed in glory, there is the redemption of their bodies to the acclamation of the entire cosmos, to the acclamation, as it were, of the universe. Why? Because not only are they transformed, the entire creation is transformed. And as far as the curse is found, the curse is more than reversed. First John chapter three, verse two, John says this. Now, beloved, we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, we're children of God, but we look like everybody else. You shouldn't live like everybody else, right? But we look like everybody else. Uh, you're not running around in your glorified body yet. You're a, you're a child of God. You have the spirit of God indwelling you, but you look like everybody else. And some of us worse than others. We bear the image of the man of dust just like everyone else does. We bear his image. We have a new nature now. God has put his spirit within us, but we still suffer. We are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, 1 John 3, 2. But we know this. We know that when he is revealed in his glorious appearing at the end of the age, we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It will be a day in which the sons of God will be revealed. What's that going to be like? I don't know. John says, we don't know what that's going to be. We don't know. What's that going to be like? Don't know. But we do know that whatever he is like, that's what we'll be like. And we can take some instruction from that or some clue as to what that's going to be like from scripture. We've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And so we're going to be conformed into his image. Well, think with me about what the Bible says about that. His body is a physical body. When the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified, when he comes back, he comes back with a, a glorified body. He even bears the mark of his, marks of his sacrifice on our behalf, right? The, the scars in his hand, the scar in his side. He had abilities that we don't have here. And whether we get those or not, I don't know. <laughs> but he's appearing in rooms and passing through walls. He radiated glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he was seen in his glory on the Mount, he radiated, he shone. Daniel says that believers will shine like the brightness of the firmament, like the stars, Daniel says. Matthew chapter 13, 43, Jesus says, the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. We don't know fully what that's gonna look like or what that's gonna be. It has not yet been revealed. But even though it's not been revealed, we groan for it, don't we? We groan for it. I'm looking forward to that body. <laughs> Creation is groaning with us. On the last day, Paul says, in a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed in a moment at the twinkling of an eye. This corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. And this is the revealing of the sons of God. Do you see? Something that all of creation is longing for. And you and I too. <laughs> longing for, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In a text that I have heard mishandled at funerals one after another, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul speaks of this very revealing to encourage us. He says, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this one in which you are currently living, this tent, this temporary dwelling that seems to get blown over by every wind that passes through, if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And notice Paul doesn't say, if I am destroyed, but rather if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. That grave, that hole in the ground, our existence doesn't terminate in that grave. It's a doorway, it's a pathway, it's a portal. Death is not the end. Death brings about the fulfillment of all God's promises and redemption. When you die, death, when we all die, <laughs> death brings about the fulfillment of all of God's promises in redemption. And notice next, if this temporary earthly tent is destroyed, we have, present active, we have a building from God. That which is temporary a tent, a house, is replaced with that which is eternal, a building. What's he referring to? He's referring to our glorified body. He's referring to our glorified body. And listen, that's what we groan for. <laughs> Verse two, for in this, in this earthly house, this temporary tent, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. That, brothers and sisters, that is seen with the eyes of faith. Right With the eyes of faith, we know the Lord has promised us a glorified body. We're going to put off this earthly tent. We're going to put away suffering. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. And we embrace that with the eyes of faith. We trust the Lord for that. That's God's word, God's promise. And God, who cannot lie, has confirmed it with an oath. Right, That's waiting for us. And so while we look forward to that... <laughs> It makes us long for that, doesn't it? It makes us groan in our current habitation. In this, we groan. We earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed then, we shall not be found naked. There is a sense in which during the intermediate state, between the time that someone now dies and the time that they receive their glorified body at the end of the age, it's what Theologians have called the intermediate state. There is a sense in which during that intermediate state, we're unclothed. We are spirits, but we'll soon receive a body. We don't want to be unclothed. We want to be further clothed, Paul says. Indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, we groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. That mortality may be swallowed up by life. Like that inheritance, our 
glorified bodies are also there reserved for us, you could say. Incorruptible, undefiled, and never fading away. Now he who has prepared this uh, for us this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. You have the spirit as a down payment, as it were, a guarantee, a pledge of your inheritance. It's like a wedding ring, if you will. <laughs> the spirit of God, our guarantee that we will inherit that very thing. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, this is Paul describing the revealing of the sons of God, the revealing of the sons of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19, Paul's point is that we're not alone when we groan. We're not alone when we groan. Our redemption is against the backdrop of a cosmic renewal. Creation eagerly waits with an earnest expectation. And what is that expectation? The revealing of the sons of God. Why is the creation said to be in such an intense condition of expectation? Why this language? Why the strong words? Why the exceeding fervency of its waiting? Well, the earnest expectation has been brought about through its unwilling subjection. We'll see that in verse 20. Through an unwilling, it's unwilling subjection. And that we'll have to explore next week in part two if the Lord allows. Think with me. God's redemptive plan includes the redemption of the cosmos. All things will be renewed. And all things being renewed, purchased and secured by the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only redeemed us to himself, but redeemed, as it were, the theater on which the sons of glory will live and move and have their being in him, right? He redeemed all things to himself. And we're earnestly awaiting that full and final consummation of our redemption Martin Lloyd-Jones had an interesting point that I thought would uh, give us something to think about. MLJ said this, I wonder whether the phenomenon of the spring supplies us with part answer. Nature, every year as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of all that is so true of the winter. In the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation, to be going through some kind of birth pangs year by year. Unfortunately, it does not succeed, for spring leads only to summer, whereas summer leads to autumn and autumn to winter. In Florida, spring only leads to summer, summer to autumn. <laughs> you get the point, right? You get the point. <laughs> Poor old nature tries every year to defeat the vanity, the principle of death and decay and disintegration that is in it, but it cannot do so. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different and better, but it never succeeds. So on it goes, groaning and travailing in pain. Winter, spring, summer, autumn, winter, until now. It has been doing so for a very long time, but nature still repeats the effort annually. Even nature communicates our need for redemption. I think that more than anything in the personification of creation, groaning, groaning, eagerly awaiting 
the redemption or the revealing of the sons of glory, that brothers and sisters communicating the greatest need of mankind, everything around us, not only within ourselves, but everything around us communicating our need for a savior. If you do not have a mediator, you will suffer the curse of the law. You will suffer the penalty of the law. The wages of sin is death. And as much as you try, try as you might, as creation seems personified to do, try as you might, you cannot bring about a renewal, the renewal that you need. You cannot redeem yourself. As the hymn says, you cannot cause your soul to live. There's nothing within you that can bring about or affect the change that is necessary. We need redemption. We need salvation. We need to be freed from our bondage to this slavery. We need to be freed from the decay that we see around us, the decay that we know is within ourselves. That is the effects of the fall. We need to be freed from our bondage to corruption. And the only way that freedom comes is through Jesus Christ, who has purchased purchased it for us, secured it for us in his own shed blood on the cross. It's the only place you're going to find hope. Otherwise, you're going to decay with creation. And in the end, when creation is burned up, when it melts with a fervent heat, what happens to those who are not the sons of glory? What happens to those who are represented there by the known material universe? They are burned up with it. And not in a moment, not in a moment, as eternal as the life is, is as eternal as the death is. And they will suffer what the Bible refers to as a second death an eternity in hell apart from any of the goodness of God or the blessedness of God and eternity in torment. We need renewal. We need redemption. Everything around us screams that to us. If you're here today and you've not turned from your sin to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, everything around you, turn on the news for five minutes and it's going to shout at you, we need a redeemer. We need this place to be cleaned up. We need this place to be fixed. And the only way it's going to be fixed is at the revealing of the sons of glory, the sons of God at the end of the age, when Jesus Christ comes back, not just to judge the wicked, but to deliver his people and to renew everything that he's made. We need redemption. And the creation shouts that to every one of us living. Turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. For the rest of us, be encouraged. That day of glory is coming. We are nearer our salvation now than we were when we first set out. And the Lord will see to it. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we thank you, Lord, for your promises. We trust you. We put our faith and trust in you. We put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that you are true to your word. And we don't doubt that, Lord. You have confirmed it with an oath. We see it revealed in your word from Genesis to Revelation, how good you are, how compassionate you are, how kind you are. Lord, you lavish loving kindness upon us. You lavish your grace and mercy upon us in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for making provision for our sin, for sending your own son and demonstrating your own love toward us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord, for this immeasurable, infinite act of love in securing our redemption. And we long, Lord, for the day when we will be with you in eternity, with our habitation, which is from on high, made without hands, eternal in the heavens, to praise and to worship you in eternity. 
We long for that day. We long, Lord, for the redemption of this creation. We long, Lord, for our adoption, the full consummated redemption of our bodies, for the full and consummated redemption of ourselves, free from sin forever. We long for that day. We groan for it. Help us, Lord, now um, with our eyes fixed on that promise, our eyes fixed on that future glory. Help us to run our race now with endurance, with perseverance, not being sluggish or apathetic, but earnestly setting forth, following after you and waiting for that glorious day of your return. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of your coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.